Hello and welcome to episode 85 of Tea or Books. I'm Simon. I'm Rachel. And in today's episode, we'll be talking about uh, one house versus many houses, which will <laughs> become clear we've just thought of it. <laughs> in the second half, slightly more prepared, we'll be comparing Miss Reed's novel Fresh from the Country with Beverly Nichols' fictionalised autobiography A Thatched Roof. But before we get to that, Rachel, how are you doing in day 10 million of, <laughs> of lockdown or whatever on? Uh, I should say, I wish I haven't said in the previous episodes, but you've probably worked out. Rachel and I always record uh, f- far away from each other, so we have not yes. been meeting each other to record throughout lockdown or anything like that, in case you're anxious. Yes, no, we've we've only ever done it a couple of times in person, haven't we? We have, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, no, because seeing as you are country mouth and I am town mouth in this situation. <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah, no, I'm very well, thank you. You know, it's just, this is life now. I've kind of stopped thinking about it. Mm. Um as being an, and I've just sort of taken it for granted that there's things now I can no longer do. Um, so I'm not raving against it anymore. I'm just accepting. I'm trying to live in the moment. Um, yeah, sometimes successfully, sometimes not. Um, I've developed a, a liking for Aperol spritz, which is helping in the evenings. <laughs> I don't know um, what that is. Is that alcoholic? It's, it's a very nice cocktail. It's it's uh, like oranges. It's, it's what I used to drink when I went to Italy in the summer, and it's kind of just Aww. helping me to feel more like you know, this is a holiday and it's all going to be fine. Um, and yes, I've been busy reading. Actually, I've had a quite an unsuccessful last couple of weeks because, you know, I'm reading through my shelves alphabetically. Mm-hmm. So I'm resisting the desire to range to other books. And yeah, I've had a bit of a disappointment with my um, F's and G's. Um, <laughs> it sounds, sounds um, anatomical, but... Mm. Um, what, what, who among the F's and G's? Well, I mean, I, you may remember me saying uh, maybe last year that I read Alone in Berlin by Hans Falada and I really, really enjoyed it. Hmm. I found it really, um, a kind of powerful depiction of, of wartime Berlin. And in England, we don't often tend to read much about the German experience of World War Two. So I found it really interesting yeah. from that level and also really well written. Um, and then I, I had another book of his that it was actually a precursor to Alone in Berlin, but wasn't published in English uh, until a few years ago. Um, and it was just so depressing. Mm. And also made me, it was also very autobiographical. And I didn't really get the sense that I would have liked him much as a person. And you know that I struggle with that. Yeah. If, I, if I don't like the author themselves or I can see their voice coming through and I don't I don't like their way of the, looking at the world, it just kind of colours the book for me. So that was a disappointment. I'd expected to like that. But I, I liked it enough to read through to the end because I found it interesting from a social perspective. It's about life immediately after the war in Germany and how German people responded to defeat. Um, and have you kept but, it? Is it still on the shelves? No, it's gone, oh. it's gone in the charity box, actually. Um and then I was excited to get to G because I had a lot of unread Susan Glassballs. Susan mm. Glassballs, for people who don't know, is um, a Persephone author. So she was very popular 20th century writer, mainly known for her plays, actually. Mm. And she founded uh, the Provincetown Players, um, which was a, a theatrical group in America. Um, and I had all these unread books. I always try and pick up a Susan Glassball every time I go to America because when I go to a second-hand bookshop. And... Two of her novels, I just were just awful. Oh no! Um, I couldn't get into them at all, and I was shocked because I love Fidelity and I love Brooke Evans, which are the two books published by Persephone. Um, I had her first book, The Glory of the Conquered, which was just the biggest load of um, sentimental early, like night. It was Edwardian <laughs> sort of claptrap. Um, <laughs> I couldn't Good get word. couldn't get past the first fifty pages. I mean, it was the the chapter that did me in was a chapter that was supposedly a love letter written by a man, and I was like, "This is not anything a man would ever write." I mean, I'm not a man, but I know that a man would never write this. <laughs> um, and it was just ridiculous. I thought this is just ridiculous. I can't bear it. So that was, and it's a shame because it's a beautiful book, the actual book itself, but um, can't bear it. And another one that I had of hers, which is one of her later novels. I mean, I, I read the first 100 pages and I was like, I literally have no idea where this is going or who any of these people are. So I just gave up. Well, you must be filling out those shelves now. 
No, I am. I'm doing a great job. Yeah. So I've made a really nice big space at the end of the shelf now. So I've, I'm still in G, and G is the middle of the shelf. So I've just I've hit Graham Green today. So I started reading <laughs> our man in Havana this morning, which has been a nice change of scene. Very funny. Okay. Yeah. So you know, I'm I'm cracking on, but it's I've I've had to give up on probably about four books over the last couple of weeks, which is unusual for me. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what about you? Any more success on the reading front? Um, I've been reading loads and getting through so many books and quite a lot of really good ones. Um, I'm reading an interesting one that isn't particularly me at the moment, but um, I've had it for a long time. It's uh, The City in the City by Tina Mayvale. Um, possibly mispronouncing that, which is, uh, it's, I guess, fantastic, but not quite. So the uh, the City in the City is, is, called, is called that because it's this... Um, European city where where there, well, there are two cities that occupy the same space uh, and it's sort of like you know an East and West Berlin thing but they're actually in the same or they overlap at least so if a citizen from one country is in that area they have they've been trained not to acknowledge the buildings and the people of the other area and so this sort of if you if you breach that then this sort of secret service called breach come and take you away mm. um, it's a really interesting concept the plot of the novel is uh, like a police procedural about quite a brutal murder so right. I, i'm really enjoying the concept and i think he handled has handled that really interestingly and and intelligently and, and intriguingly all the eyes but um but a gritty police procedurals aren't my go-to with novels so i do sort of <laughs> wish that he'd maybe maybe done it a bit differently um more in my line what i've just finished is uh my discovery of england by stephen leacock um, and I've, I've talked about him before on um, the podcast, a, a Canadian humorist who from sort of 1910s and 20s, who I really love. And this is a spoof of all those sorts of books from the first half of the 20th century where English writers would go to America and then write down their impressions and sell them for lots of money. Um, oh. The Prin- Provincial Lady in America is perhaps the sort of most famous oh. one but um, now, but, but everyone seemed to be doing it at the time. They go and spend a couple of weeks in in Colorado or something, and then write something about the entire country. So he's 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 a it's a light hearted spin on that, which I very yeah. much enjoyed. Particularly the time he spent in Oxford, um, largely because Oxford has not changed in the last hundred years, as far as based on that. But yeah, I've um, I'm going through my list of books I've read the other day, thinking this is actually obviously a terrible year for many reasons, but a really good reading year. So swings and roundabouts. Well, you know, that's every cloud. Exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. So first half of this episode, we we came up with the topic moments before we came on, um, <laughs> which we did a long time ago, or not so at some point we did uh, novel set in a day versus novel set over a long period of time, and this is sort of the space equivalent of that. We have done big world and small world, but this is, I guess, the novel equivalent of a bottle episode of a, of a sitcom or of, or a drama, where it's all set in the same place. Do for Books that are all set in one house, one room, even, or were they just about, dart about all over the place? Um, what are your first thoughts about books that are set in one place? I mean, I don't intrinsically have a problem with that. Um, I actually quite like close description in novels, and I like feeling that a place comes to life and I know everything about it. Um and I mean, I can't off the top of my head think of a book I've read recently that was all set in one house. But there's certainly been novels where the vast majority of the action, I mean, obviously, um, you know, people need to come to and from the house. So sometimes there is description of, of other things around it. But um, there's certainly houses in fiction that have been really evocative for me. So, for example, The Last September by Elizabeth Bowen is set in a crumbling um, Irish country house mm. um, and that's very evocative and I don't think they really go anywhere from memory um, and the rooms are so beautifully described and they just have this this fading grandeur everywhere and it's used as a as a metaphor for the situation in Ireland itself um, I think as well um, Mansfield Park is largely only set by Jane Austen is largely only set in takes place in the house um itself which is again a very interesting i mean there are moments where she goes you know she goes to portsmouth mm-hmm. but um that's a very brief part of the book most of the book is set 
in Mansfield Park itself. And it is very claustrophobic for that reason, um, because Fanny's world is very small. She can't go anywhere. Um, I think that's a th- yeah, I think that's the thing. Like if her book's mostly set in one place, then then it's so impactful yeah. when they travel somewhere else, like the Portsmouth section of there or the London section of I Capture the Castle or something. Mm. It's suddenly this whole big, you know, urban world in which wouldn't be make such a difference to the reader if it was the setting all along or if it was you know they went to and from it all the time no and I, I think um rosamond pilcher's novels which are not necessarily you know considered to be highbrow literature but you know i i think there's much to be said for rosamond pilcher as a novelist and she her novel, i don't know if you've ever read any of her they haven't no you have, well, mentioned I them before i've meant to yeah yeah you would really enjoy them um and her novels are all set kind of in a Daphne du Maurier-esque country, you know, like seaside, uh, clifftop houses Mm -hmm. with lots of rugged countryside and things. And those novels always really stayed with me because the the houses pay such a huge part of the plot and a huge part of the characters' lives. You know, the characters are very much um, wanting, have a very deep emotional connection to the house or they want to hold on to a house. Um, And the houses... um, kind of everything that's happened within the house or the people that have lived in the house is very central to the plot and she does a wonderful job of making the house into a character itself so that you know you can literally imagine every room you can see what it looks like from the outside you can imagine what it smells like you can imagine all the sounds you might Mm. hear you can almost feel the breeze on you as you go out the french windows onto the lawn you know that kind of thing and those sorts of novels I just find incredibly escapist and in my experience novels that are set very strongly in a particular place a particular house uh, in the domestic environment tend to be fantastic comfort reads yeah it's interesting so I was, I was jotting down a few quick ideas between um, the beginning of the episode and now for, for books that are set largely in one house and some of them very much that sort of yeah sort of comforting sprawling estate that you mentioned but others that i wrote down um i love the sundial by shirley jackson did you ever read that one no i do i haven't it's my favorite of hers and she she had a bit of a renaissance a few years ago which i think is continuing it's um it's very funny but it's also dystopian so it's uh a sort of prophecy comes that it's the end of the world and the only people will be saved are those who live in this one particular house uh various generations of the same family and people who've married in and all that sort of thing so um the really funny thing about it is that they all believe this and take it seriously or but also aren't particularly bothered so they all stay there but but it's they're still going on their family squabbles and things they're not really bothered about the apocalypse um and yeah there is a brief time when one of them tries to escape um, off somewhere else but generally it's all in this uh in this house that's not at all comforting because whilst it's saving them it's also sort of the centre of their their own sort of familial dystopia I guess. Um, yeah well I suppose the same could be said for they've always lived in the castle right? Exactly yeah. We've yeah. always lived in the castle yeah and the haunted um, and the haunting of Hill House so she's very much a one place writer. Yeah and even her comics memoirs um, Raising Demons and Life Among the Savages are very much centred on the home and it's actually I haven't thought about it but it links to the other book I was thinking that was less that was sort of more unsettling. So Shelley Jackson um, had agoraphobia uh, herself, and the other novel I was thinking about was Yellow by Yanni Visman, which is uh, the, the protagonist of that has agoraphobia, so, and she lives in quite a small flat. So it's all in this one place because she can't cope with going anywhere else, um, which obviously is not comforting, but a really interesting way. In, and I guess like the yellow wallpaper or something like that as well, where, where the room isn't... Um, like a comforting home it's more like no. a prison so you're trapped trapped in there with with the characters the reader also you know gets that claustrophobia in that sense that they can't get out yeah which um yeah can be done really interestingly yeah i think there's a there's a lot to be to be said for the domestic interior as being a place of of entrapment and i um margarita lasky's the victorian she's long mm, is a good example yeah, as good well yeah. um and particularly when they're used by feminist writers to think about women's place within the home and um, how for many women, you know, home certainly in the past was was a prison, essentially. You know, there was no opportunities outside of the home. Um, I think it's quite interesting as you get into sort of the 
the mid and then the later part of the 20th century, you have these sagas of, of quite nostalgic sagas about country houses and the plot taking place there. And it's all very romantic. And, um, you know, Daphne du Maurier as well. In I mean, obviously, the house is also a, a place in um, Rebecca of mm-hmm. great trauma, but also it's a house that's clearly loved and has a personality of its own. And that sense of perhaps the stability of, of the home and, and what home means in a post-war world is quite interesting. Um, yeah. Perhaps, you know, the, the domestic space isn't seen as a as somewhere to trap people after the war. It's, it's seen more as a place of security and safety, somewhere to come back to. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. Um, sort of, I mean, it, it's not quite the opposite we, we posited at the beginning, but I... Um, find novels about moving house really interesting mm. uh, and my one of my favorite things to read about particularly in in comic fiction is house hunting it's I yeah. just always love it and in fact um i think it's racing demons uh, by shadow jackson has some very funny stuff about house hunting that i think of uh, mrs tim of the regiment as well d stevenson um, has some funny stuff on house hunting but that idea either when they're looking for somewhere else to move or they are moving like you know the new house by lettuce cooper um i'm sure there's lots of other examples but uh, uh that idea green of ta- gates green gates of course yeah love that by Ashley sheriff wonderful novel that we did an episode on um years ago that yeah that idea of taking your most personal space and transplanting that and then sort of rediscovering what it is to have that new space for your, your you know your home and your furniture in different places and all that sort of thing like lolly willows by silver towns and warner again another good example of like finding security in a new location um i find that transition can either work really well in, in comic fiction or in more poignant fiction it's um just a really an interesting idea particularly if you, if you see both sides of the journey you know going from yeah. one place to the other yeah, I think it's it's always interesting reading about people's experiences of moving. I mean, we've all done it. We all hate it. <laughs> yeah, it's um, the worst. Yeah, and it's yeah, it's it's the idea of moving house. I always find it really interesting because you've got the excitement about going somewhere new, but then there's also that sense of of sadness at leaving behind something, particularly when you're leaving a, a home you've lived in for a long time, um, or perhaps a home you didn't want to leave. Um, yeah, yes. I've definitely done the one where you, I've moved from somewhere I love to somewhere I really didn't want to go, and it's just the most miserable because it's already yeah. so much hard work, and you're just like, I, I don't want to do any of this. Yeah, I mean, gosh, I'd never cried so much, but when I moved out of my childhood home, it was awful. Mm. Um, but it's there's also you know ho- novels about people you know falling in love with homes, like for example, The Air by mm, Peter Sackville West is a wonderful, wonderful example yeah. um, of that, and where a home can kind of cast a spell over you um and i remember reading a a story once actually i can't remember where it was but about a woman who bought a house really cheaply because they said it was haunted and then it turned out that the ghost was her and she'd been visiting it in her dreams goodness yes Uh, yeah so that (laughs) idea of the pull of a place or a home is also something that's often explored quite well in fiction um and I, but then I, I think at the same time, novels where characters move a lot are also very interesting because they, I mean, they, they tend to be different types of novels, don't they? It's a particular type of character or somebody who's going through a particular um, phase of their life that feels the need to constantly be moving on. Um, and I think there are a lot of, of early sort of 20th century novels that look at that quite well that of people constantly moving between digs and lodgings and having these very unsettled um often quite underworldy type of lives um and they're always staying in these sort of grimy one room flats with a gas burner and a horrible landlady and that kind of thing um, like the l-shaped yeah. room that i read recently was quite interesting on that one which I think is, I know, one day we'll do an episode and we can fully air our disagreements about it. But, um, <laughs> I think one of the most wonderful depictions of plays, even though the place is horrible, um, it's, yeah, I've never felt more like I didn't want to leave a place than when, than when I finished reading that book, um, even though, but, you know, bed bugs and prostitutes and all. But um, Yeah, the way they move from place to place a lot in a book, I 
Uh, I find it difficult if we're also getting a new set of characters each time, and often you do. Yeah. You know, if someone's travelling around a country, um, or even just a long novel where people's got charting their times in different places. Um, I feel like if you have to, you like the character, you're trying to make yourself at home afresh again, someone new, which can be very effective, but makes it, you know, on more practical grounds, it's harder to remember who people are or that sort of thing, particularly if you're then expected to remember the people from the first house by four houses later. Yes. Though, I mean, one of my favourite novels in the history of all novels is <laughs> Illyrian Spring by Anne Bridge. Yeah, yeah. Um, and this is a wonderful account of people travelling through a space um, up the Dalmatian coast. And the fact that the location keeps changing is a really key part of the book. Mm-hmm. And is wonderful as well because you get to experience each new location through the eyes of the characters who are also seeing it for the first time. Um, and each location changes something within them, which I love. And I guess it's a common feature of the Quest novel, mm. um, which is a very big in fantasy. So I read The Eye of the World by Robert Jordan. It's to say, I've not read Lord of the Rings or The Hobbit, but that sort of thing as well, where they're always, always on the journey to a, to a specific destination and meeting obstacles along the way that, uh, thinking about it, maybe that's one of the reasons that I don't particularly get on with those novels amongst quite a lot of other reasons. Um, because I, I think I find that constant s- series of transitions quite hard to, you know, if we settled as a reader, I think maybe I'm more drawn to people settling down than I realised. Whereas <laughs> <laughs> um, I love reading people who are travelling. Yeah. <laughs> and do you like travel, travel, uh, travel non-fiction? Oh yeah, I love it. I always love to read about traveling and then I use it to sort of help me decide where I might want to go next. And I've always got this kind of restless soul and itchy feet and wanderlust and everything else. So travel literature helps to assuage some of those longings. I have to be somewhere else. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I'm very much the opposite. Um, I, which is why I've lived in the same County my entire adult life. <laughs> but, um, I always thought the reason I didn't particularly like travel literature is because I don't have that visual imagination that we've talked about before so if people are describing scenery it means nothing to me um and that's one of the reasons but maybe it's also that i'm just like just stay at home (laughs) don't why are you traveling home's fine stay where you are uh i recently read thorny hold by mary stewart have you read that no i haven't it was recommended to my friend kirsty um I was going to say she gave it to me. I don't think she did. I think we were in a bookshop together and she basically forced me to buy it. So <laughs> I, did. I did really enjoy it. Um, it's one of those novels that I think it's published in the 80s and it may even be set in the 80s, but it feels like it's set much earlier. Um, and about a woman who inherits this enormous um, house from an aunt, maybe someone she doesn't know super well, uh, and she has to try and work out what her place is in that new world spoilers from quite early on in the book turns out she might be a witch but um yeah. <laughs> but i enjoyed it it was i would it's like, like to read more exactly exactly i think that's why because he was so keen that i read it um it's very very light and easy to read but, um so, um elizabeth who listens to the podcast uh, told me i think it was elizabeth that said must read nine coaches waiting by her said it was quite like rebecca which is definitely a good mm. good recommendation Editing Simon is jumping in to say that it was Rebecca who recommended Nine Coaches Waiting. I should have remembered that, and she compared it to Rebecca. <laughs> Thanks, Rebecca. Back to the show. Um, have you read any Mary Stewart? No, I've meant to, but I haven't. One of those names, isn't she? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, well. Yeah. So, what are you going to pick? Moving around this one, one house. <sighs> I don't know. This is a really hard one for me because many of my favourite novels take place in in one house um, or in one very vivid, you know, location, and and others, other favourite novels of mine, you know, they're moving around, and that's the reason why I like it. But I, I think probably if I think about the comfort books I go to the most, they tend to be one house novels. So I'm going to go with that. Nice. Um, I feel less torn. <laughs> I will also be going with that. <laughs> Uh, I think it's just going to do such a really interesting range of things. There you go. Uh, we have a question I don't think we've done for the middle section yet from Sydney, um, which she, she, she sent in two. One was for you and one was for me. I thought it would be fun to do them both um, together anyway, which is uh, favourite historical fiction. Have we talked about that? Uh, I don't think so. 
if we have Sydney, you can have some more recommendations. But as as we know, not my favourite genre. You quite like it. Yeah. So if I really like historical fiction, it's probably really, really great stuff. But um, what what are you going to choose for your... Or shall I go first? Do you want some thinking time? So the question is, what's our favourite? Basically, just some great recommendations of historical okay. fiction. Okay. Um, well, I mean, I have many. Of course. So do you want to go first? Because I do not have many. I think yeah. the... Uh, um, the writer I, I really love who often, um, maybe always, sets her books in the past is Sarah Waters. Mm. She, hit, she hits two things that I don't like normally, long books and historical fiction, and still <laughs> <laughs> manages to make things that I really like. Um, so I think she's a great novelist for the person who doesn't like historical fiction. Um, I cannot now think of any others that I've liked, but I'm sure there are there are some Um but maybe if you come up with some of your favourites, that some more will come to me. Yeah, so, I mean, I do tend to find that most historical fiction is, is fairly long, so you do have to be prepared to, you know, immerse yourself and put aside a couple of weeks. Um, <laughs> so my favourite, favourite, favourite historical fiction is the three um, Wolf Hall books by Hilary Mantle, which are just incredible. Don't be put off by the size, because <laughs> once you're in them, you don't want to leave and they're just the most brilliantly written incredibly evocative books i can't recommend them highly enough um i also really recommend the crimson petal and the white by michelle faber um which is a wonderful evocation of victorian london and sort of the underworld and there's a fantastic main character um who is a prostitute and it's very unexpected very interesting incredibly well written and you know it's practically a thousand pages long but it, it whips by <laughs> um and another of my absolute favorites is the french lieutenant lieutenant's women um and it's um it's kind of it's a faux historical novel um so it's kind of like it's written from the perspective of somebody writing so you know that it's it's being it's fiction i can't i'm can't trying to think of how to describe the narrative i've gone black. um it's uh i guess postmodern yes it's very postmodern meta it's, and all that sort it's of thing. meta yeah so the narrator speaks to you saying oh you don't really think i'm going to make my character do that do you so it's it's very it doesn't pretend to be historical it's very much a construct um but it's still set in the victorian period and it's it's absolutely brilliant um and another historical novel that's sort of half historical and half not because part of it's set in the past and part of it is is in the novel's present day which is um possession by a.s byer which is the only book mm. by a.s byer i've ever been able to read um and it's fantastic probably because it takes all my boxes um <laughs> it's about a um a modern day well i guess 90s it was written so set in the 90s an academic researcher who's researching the life of a 19th century poet and when he goes to the library and finds a book of his that has been hidden in a box for quite some time he finds a stash of letters in there which link him romantically to another victorian poet who was not his wife and then you sort of go back and forth i know it's very good (laughs) so um yeah those are my sort of top off the top of my head oh and also my last one actually uh, I'm just looking at my bookshelves. Um, Alias Grace by Margaret Atwood, which I do think is her best book. Many people would probably disagree with me, but I, I do think that's her, her finest piece of literature, which is the, the story of a girl who, um, in Canada, an Irish immigrant to Canada in the 19th century, who is accused and imprisoned for, um, having murdered her employer. But is she innocent? Is she guilty? We don't know. Well, Sydney, I hope you like long books, because I think all of those are at least 500 pages long, aren't they? No, they are. I'm sorry. Uh, Well, whilst you were saying that, I was trying to think of some more. And I mean, I did like Possession. I I read it when I I was 15 or 16, I guess. But I I did really like it. Um, The only other things I've been able to come up with, Ivy Compton Burnett's novels are usually set in the late Victorian period. But they're so stylized and otherworldly that... um, they don't really feel like they're set at any particular point in, in human history. They're just in Ivy Compton Burnett land, which is meant as a compliment. They're wonderful. Uh, and the only other one I could think of that I really liked is Erin uh The Snow Child, which I think is set in the 20s, maybe, uh, about a couple uh, in Alaska who make a child out of snow and can't have children themselves, and then the child comes alive. It's a retelling of the fairy tale. Uh, but again, being a fairy tale 
it doesn't really. I mean, it's obviously not historical fiction in the sense that it could have happened at the time. It is fantastical. So there may be other examples I can't come up with, but I, I'm, I'm realizing afresh my deep-seated dislike of historical fiction <laughs> <laughs> and my book group's continuing determination to make me read historical fiction. Ah, I keep reading them. Someone got quite cross with me because I didn't like them. They said they disagreed. It's like, well, you can't disagree. I don't like them. That's just true. <laughs> well, you know, it is what it is. And yeah. everyone has a particular um, penchant for genres. And you prefer reading books written at the time, you know, set at the time when they're written. And there's, there's enough books going around that oh, we can quite happily read from that pile for the rest of yeah. my life and only make a small dent in it. Um, great. Well, I hope those help, Sydney. You might um, find some new reads there. And next time we can do the question that you had for me which I will save for next time, um, unless we've already done it. But I don't think we have. So, second half, we two books that sort of are about country and town and moving to a new place, etc., sort of. Um, Fresh from the Country by Miss Reed uh, and A Thatched Roof by Beverly Nichols. Um, you've just read the Beverly Nichols, so do you want to talk about that? Yeah. Um, so, A Thatched Roof is the tale of Beverly Nichols' purchase and move to a, a small of a of a cottage in a, a little village in what was then apparently called a, a Huntingdonshire which no longer exists it's part of Cambridge so it's um in the countryside in Cambridgeshire um and the the various um improvements he makes to the house the various trouble he has with nosy and um sometimes meddling neighbours but also some other nice neighbours who just like to come round say you know we have an occasion where they just his well stops producing water and his neighbour recommends he gets someone come round with a dowsing stick so we have a, <laughs> a whole chapter of them trying to find water in the garden um so it's it's very much about how he he settles into the village but also how he settles into a home because he's always rented before and this is his first ever um home that is is all his and his excitement at being able to make any changes he wants and um is is really lovely and also his decision to kind of sit with the house for a while and see how it is and um to to wait until he's been there a while and the house sort of speaks to him about what it what what it wants done um and yeah he's just joy in simple things like the view from the window and that kind of thing it's a very gentle book nice yeah um I should say, before I move on, apologies if you can hear the two flies that are buzzing around my room constantly. <laughs> um, I closed my windows to make the recording better, but uh, it means I've trapped some flies in with me. <laughs> um, I'm going to do my best to describe Fresh from the Country by Miss Reed, but I'm also reading um, a novel called A Regiment of Women by Clement Dane, which is about a girl who moves, or a woman who moves from the countryside to a town to... Um, <laughs> to become a teacher and so oh, right. they're going to merge in my head <laughs> because that is the premise of this uh, Anna has moved from um, the middle of nowhere in, in Essex from a farm a farming community to a suburb of London to uh, to take her first teaching job and it's uh, basically a quite funny take on what it's like to try and be a teacher the first time in this this is published in 1960 so around then um she has to deal with all the teaching staff some of whom are quite strange some of them are a bit cliquey uh she has to deal with living with a very parsimonious landlady uh and she might even fall in love along the way um yeah it was badly yeah yeah uh well yeah i this is my second misread i can't remember the name of the other one i read but it had it was one of the church green novels i think or thrush Thrush green Green. thrush green sorry um it's set in whitney where it's called church green which is where i was getting (laughs) confused um where a house caught fire that's the only thing i remember uh and yeah i enjoyed it it was um i instantly felt complete sympathy with her having to move from the countryside to the city like any character who even if they want to do it who has to move from the countryside to the city i just think oh you poor thing and i know that the stereotype is i've got out of the small town world and i'm in the big city and i have all these opportunities but i think she must just miss all those fields and having to live in suburbs poor anna but but she's a lovely she's a she's a, a, a lively and happy sort of heroine um i found as i found with the other mystery i read that it's not 
um, there's no, no enormous depths to it. It's not no. trying to be great literature, but it is very entertaining. Um, as, a, as a teacher, how do you find the descriptions of teaching in the late 1950s? Yeah, I mean, that's the part of the book I, I enjoyed the most, actually. I found it really interesting how um, much of teaching has stayed the same and how much has, has changed. Um, and it's interesting reading um, about her experiences of all like these new ideas that have come in and all these, these new uh, approaches to things and the inspector coming to do all this kind of stuff. And it's, you know, nothing changes. I mean, it's as the old teachers in my previous school always used to say, you know, if you're hanging around for long enough, the old ideas just keep coming right on back. <laughs> it's um, that was interesting to me. Um, but also the the class sizes were just astonishing. She has 60 children in her class and so she's just expected to get on with it. Yeah. And they keep adding them as well, don't they? Keep adding kids to her class. And when the, when another teacher's off sick, they're like, oh, you can just, you know, the kids just come can come in and sit, sit on the floor. Um, <laughs> and, yeah, it's just madness what they're expected to put up with. But it's also really interesting to to kind of go through, again, that experience of your first year of teaching and how keen you are for everything to go well and how personally you take it when everything goes wrong, which it does on a daily basis. Um, but also <laughs> Something I thought probably has changed good. is that the time when she was – spends about an hour and a half marking and just lets the class get on with chatting or colouring or something. She has it all in the classroom, which I can't yeah, imagine happens. <laughs> yeah, I wish she could do that now. I mean, yeah, it's, it's interesting as well to see how much things have changed in terms of children where you sort of had a, a bit at the beginning of the lesson where you explained something and then the kids were just supposed to get on with it um, mm. and on their own and sitting on their own in their own desk and then you get on with what you needed to do. Whereas obviously nowadays, much of what happens in a classroom is discussion and it's also group work so uh, which I don't always agree with because as somebody who always preferred to do things on my own as a child I would have mm, hated yeah. to have always been forced into working with a group um, but it's yeah it's interesting to see that it's gone from being very much you impart wisdom and then the children just copy it down and then do a, an activity whereas now it's much more about getting kids to think for themselves um which I suppose reflects our different societal values these days. Um, but it's, I thought it was, it was a very accurate view of teaching. And you can tell Miss Reed, the author, Dora Saint, I think her name was, was a teacher mm. herself. So mm. you can tell that she, she knows of what she speaks. Um, and it's, you know, you also have the lovely kind of stereotypical depictions of teachers and, um, you know, the certain types of teachers that, that you find in every school, which again is very true. Um, you know, there's always someone who's trying to, to suck up and get a promotion and <laughs> someone who's looking for as many ways as possible not to do any work. Um, you know, there's, it's, it's good fun in that sense. From a professional standard, I found it very interesting, but I also found, um, the depiction of, of somebody moving away from home for the first time very moving um you know that sense that she'd always been at home with her parents she'd always had a home to go home, go back to and she's living in this awful spare bedroom with this horrible woman who's renting this room out in her prefab home yeah. and who kind of gives her as little as she can get away with in terms of food and stuff and it's just not a home to go back to and it's that Lost. She would give, give her cups of tea. Yeah. yeah she, would give her cups of tea. she gives her, you know, half a biscuit or something. It's yeah. awful. Um, and in some ways, a thatched roof is a, is a little like this sort of move. I, I, Beverly Nichols often talks about being part of that village community, but he was a, it was sort of a holiday house. He lived in London quite a lot of the time, um, which gets my hackles up as, as a village person. We, you know, we don't want people who are part-time residents. You live in a village or you don't, Beverly. Yeah. But yeah, it's been 70 years. I could probably get over it. Um, it's the middle of a trilogy. Um, so the first one is Down the Garden Path. And the last one is uh, a, a village in a, in, the, in a valley. The village in the valley. The song about villages and valleys. Yeah. Uh, so I don't entirely remember what happens in, in the middle one <laughs> as opposed to the other two. But uh, what I do, I was reading my own review of it just now, and it's definitely the one where he talks more about the house, which is why we went with houses at the front. Yeah. The first one, the, the first in the series, is much more about the garden. Um, 
unsurprisingly being called down the garden path. And I I definitely much more enjoyed when he's talking about the house. And I loved all the stuff about, elect, like, should the village get electricity or not? Yeah. And Beverly just goes and gets it himself. And it does for his house. And it, like, illuminates his statues and alcoves and all sorts. Yeah. It's glorious. Um, yeah, it's, I mean, it's... I've never read any Beverly Nichols before. I know that you've always spoken quite highly of him and mm. have liked collecting his books. So when I saw it in the charity shop, I, I picked this one up. I didn't realise it was the middle in the series. Unfortunately, I don't have the other two. But um, I found his voice very, um, very funny. And I don't obviously know how much of, of the account is exaggerated. I would imagine quite a lot of it is. Um yeah, but, I think in fact even the people aren't real. He's just their sort of corpses oh, right. of people. Okay. But, yeah, yeah. Um, but it's I suppose they couldn't be actually because people would read it and be like, oh, you can't say that about me. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but it's I thought it was a very evocative portrayal of of the emotional connection between people and their homes, um, and also how you kind of make a home for yourself in a new place and what home means. Um, but also just nice sort of things about decorating and how you choose what goes mm. where and um it was quite a nice sort of gossipy um voyeuristic book in a way i mean i'm the kind of person who loves looking on property websites just because i like mm. the yep, yep. um so that kind of thing always appeals to me i'm ever so nosy um and i loved his his sense of humor and his cattiness um about his neighbors yes. <laughs> um and it, it did make make me want to read the others in the series. I'm not sure if I would necessarily appreciate the one about gardens because I'm not much of a gardener, but um, I'd be more interested in reading about the village itself. Yeah, well, I will say, I mean, I did really enjoy this one. His later trilogy, the Mary Hall trilogy, which starts with Mary Hall and then um, Sunlight on the Lawn and something else, um, uh, it's, a, it's basically the same concept but a different village. And those are... I think, like, even funnier, definitely cattier. Uh, there's still stuff about gardens and stuff about the house, but it's much more about the village gossip. And I like you, yeah, I just, I, I love his gossipy voice. I love that um, it's, it's, it's really catty, but it's never mean spirited. You, you feel like he would probably, if, if push came to shove, would help any of these people out in, yeah. in a crisis, but also doesn't mind lording over them. It's sort of like Mafia Lucia, but, but, more kind-hearted than, than they are. <laughs> <laughs> um, I also really enjoyed the mention of the provincial lady in the first few pages. Yes, as did so, I. Yes. I thought this is a kindred spirit right here. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> and I have to also make a mention of the fact that it's beautifully illustrated by Rex Whistler. Yes, he did um, all three of that first trilogy and various others of his books. Yeah. Really just wonderful. Yeah, I'm very lucky to my edition had its original dust jacket, which is stunning. Um, yes, yeah, I, I don't, sadly. Well, um, interesting you mentioned his, the bit on dowsing, because um, I've just read a book by him called Powers That Be, where he um, meets various people who say they can do supernatural things. And I thought it would be a very funny book where he just sort of meets people who are a bit like Madame Arcati and like writes catically about them, but it's it was 30 years later maybe and by that point apparently he would become much more convinced of all of this so he takes it all extremely seriously uh, whether it's people doing you know dowsing sticks or people being able to identify what illness you have by putting your blood in a black box and then looking at it for a long time <laughs> etc so um i definitely prefer him when he's tongue-in-cheek and not taking people very as seriously yes yeah. <laughs> Okay. Well, I mean, I'm going to be very keen to look out for for more of his stuff. I'm really pleased. That's great. Because, yeah. I mean, it's quite easy to find quite a lot of them. He's very prolific. So I hope you... Yeah. Yeah. Um, and Miss Reed is... The book is, is a sort of interesting mix of funny and, like, it's much more... The character takes the characters more seriously than Beverly takes the people around him. Yes. I, I mean, I think Miss Reed is actually a very underrated novelist. I mean, yes, she is very much comfort reading. She's not anything highbrow. Um, she's very much middlebrow um, writing, but she writes about people and places in a very, um, I would say, emotionally sensitive way. And she is a little bit, you know, of her time. But actually, the writing, well, it's not, I wouldn't say it was work workmanlike. I think the writing is, is good. It's not, you know, anything special. But it's, mm. 
you know, there's, she's got an eye for description. I think she writes well and I've got many of her books and I've loved every single one of them. So that you have to be in the right mood. I would say they're Sunday afternoon books. Yeah, I, I think I, I really enjoyed it, but I wanted there to be a bit more bite to it. And I don't yeah. quite know exactly what I mean with that. Cause it's, cause it's not got this like paragon heroine. She's not, she doesn't like everyone. Like, it's not like she's suddenly, cause you get, you read some books where they just get on with everyone and everyone's lovely and it's yeah. just a bit annoying. Whereas <laughs> she, <laughs> she finds some of the teachers creepy or, or annoying. She doesn't like a landlady. Yeah. And we see all these things in the, in the narrative. So I don't know quite what it is that I felt made it feel quite so gentle. Um, and as you say, there's a time and a place for that. Uh, and a Sunday afternoon is a great time and a place for that. Um, yeah. but I, maybe I'm just much cattier than I realized. And I just, or maybe I'm not catty enough and I want someone to read someone else doing it, saying, saying the sorts of things that nobody would dare. <laughs> so I guess she doesn't, maybe that's the thing because Anna never really says anything unkind to anyone. So she thinks unkind things sometimes about people, but she, it's just very nice with everyone, which is a much better way to be. But I like that Beverly isn't afraid to, um, in this fictionalised world, he's reflecting, I'm not afraid to be quite rude to his neighbours and see what happens. No, I mean, he's not afraid of speaking his mind, that's for sure. Yeah. No. Um, I think he'd be a terrible neighbour, frankly, but but, um, but very funny to read about. Whether, I can't remember if there are any cats in this one. Um... Maybe they didn't appear in this one. <coughs> I think there might be a cat actually, briefly. He writes so well about like about cats. Nobody writes better about cats. There's more of them in the next trilogy, which I know isn't a big selling point for you, but his cats one one, four and five, one, two and five. They're all named numbers. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> they they're wonderful in the next trilogy. For anyone who likes a book about a cat. Well anyway. I mean not my thing, but yeah. Um, as somebody who very happily lives in the city, mm. um, what do you make of the way that Miss Reed writes about the suburbs versus the going back to the Essex countryside? Yeah, well, I mean, I hate the suburbs, so I completely agree. Um, I always so we can just unify on like <laughs> from from country and city, we both just dislike the suburbs most. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I grew up in the suburbs, and I was always desperate to get out. Um, it's just a no man's land, isn't it? It's a hinterland between the two. You've got sort of you know, you're not really in the city um, and you're not in the countryside. You don't get any of the benefits of either. You've got, you know, just streets and streets of houses and a few parks and whatever. And there's just nothing to do. Um, I mean, there's plenty of lovely suburbs. I mean, where I grew up was very nice. I know it, I can see that my parents thought it was a lovely place to bring up children. And I quite agree. But by the time you get to be a teenager, you're just like, there's literally nothing to do and nowhere to go. Um, whereas at least I feel like if I lived in the countryside, I would have been able to go romping over hills and, you know, yeah. be naughty behind haystacks and things. I mean, let's I beg your pardon. No, there's nothing to do in a suburb apart from, you know, hang out outside McDonald's. So it's, um, yeah, depressing. <laughs> yes, and there's some very impassioned, I listen, the, the backlisted podcasts, they're always very impassioned supporters of the suburbs and they, you know, quite anti that school of, you know, George Orwell's early novels and th those sorts of things where they were damning the, the suburbs. But, I mean, I can't imagine ever living anywhere that's not the countryside ever again, and I really hope I don't have to. But, uh, but I, yeah, yeah. I can, I can at least understand why people would live in the city, whereas I don't really understand the appeal. But I did feel just it felt like a breath of fresh air to me when she was back at home in the countryside, oh, yeah, like the feel being in those open spaces, and yeah. you know. I mean, I've got a huge amount of of the country spirit inside me, and I, I can definitely see myself living in the countryside one day. Um, I've got a cat I mean, in, in, in my a, headphones. Sorry, yeah. there we go. <laughs> in an ideal world, you know, I'd I'd have a flat in London and a house in by the sea, and I would split my time between the two. But you know, well, you've I, just heard my views on Beverly Nichols splitting his time between London and the countryside. Yeah, I know. Commit, that I, would part, I would be a part of the community, Simon. I'd do stuff. <laughs> I'd be on every committee. They'd never think of you as the same. I know. They'd be like, "Oh, that's that girl from London coming down." <laughs> Uh, get your pitchforks out. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be first in the first row with the pitchfork. Like, <laughs> she's my friend, but the village comes first. <laughs> first to know where I stand. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, being very clear. <laughs> um, okay, which which of the two are you going to choose? I think because of the teaching interest, I would go with Fresh from the Country. 
That makes sense. Um, yeah, I'm. I I enjoyed this misread more than I liked the other one I read, um, and I would certainly read more. But I just love Beverly Nichols so much, and that's I think probably my favorite of that trilogy, um, as much as I can remember what's in it. So yeah, I'm going to go with a thatched roof. Now, Simon, um, if one were looking to buy another, well, or get hold of another Beverly Nichols book, mm. um, they're not cheap. So would you recommend that somebody buy a book from this trilogy or would you recommend somebody buy a book from the Mary Hall trilogy? I would definitely say Mary Hall trilogy. I think it's 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 less popular, I think, but I think it's better. He sort of everything he does well in the first one, he does better in the next one. And Mary Hall itself is quite cheap because it was republished by one of those sort of mass republishing publishers of the nineteen sixties or something. So the other two in the series are slightly harder to find, but Mary Hall you can get very cheaply if you're if you're happy to read a sort of fairly ugly version of it. <laughs> um, that's yeah, my favourite. I think of all the Beverly Nevels, Nevels, <laughs> Beverly Nichols books that I've read. Um, which which misread would you say people should start with? If is it this one or? Well, this is quite unusual in that it's um, it's a standalone. So most of her books are in quite long series, actually. So you've got the Thrush Green series, and then you've got um, another the other one that I haven't read. I can't remember what it's called, but there's there's two long series of books. I mean, they've both got well over ten books in them. Oh, well, okay. Um, you don't necessarily need to know. You don't need to have read them in order, but th- they do sort of continue one from the other. So I think you'd be a bit confused if you kind of jumped in in the middle. Um, for me personally, I've loved the Thrush Green series, and I would probably say I would start with Thrush Green more than this book because this book is slightly different because it's about a teacher, and it's mm. um, whereas the other books are set in villages, you know, about a village community, and I think that's more her um, interest really. And okay. Thrush Green is a wonderful introduction to her style. If you don't like Thrush Green, then you won't like her other books. <laughs> okay, good to know. Yeah. Um. Great. Okay. In the next episode, we're going to do two books with very similar titles, but I think are very different. Um, <laughs> we're finally doing Marilyn Robinson, but not yeah. the one that people are expecting. <laughs> uh, we're going to do When I Was a Child, I Read Books by Marilyn Robinson versus The Child That Books Built by Frances Spufford. Yes. Um, yeah. Great. Um, look forward to talking to you in episode 86. Maybe when we can go out and about again. Who knows? Ooh, that would be exciting, wouldn't it? Yeah. Yeah, one day. Thanks, everyone. Thanks. Bye. 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 bye.